Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad. We are a husband and wife and partners in crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. So glad you can join us for this episode because we are about to dive into the darkest corners of human nature. So brace yourself as we embark on a journey filled with twisted motives, unsolved mysteries, and the constant pursuit for justice. As always, listener discretion is advised. The content in this specific episode involves child victims and involves extremely graphic details. A lot of kids in their teens have the typical plans of getting their driver's license, starting their first job, maybe improving their physical fitness, you know, typical high school things. But two teenage boys of the Bever family had other plans. Located 15 miles east of Tulsa is a city called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, populating over 116,300 people, according to the United States Census Bureau for the year of 2021. Broken Arrow was originally established to be Indian Territory and was home to the Muscogee Creek Indians, who were forced to move to Oklahoma from Alabama. This could be covered in a whole other podcast, but thousands of Native Americans traveled mostly by foot from the southeastern states to Oklahoma. And this was called the Trail of Tears because over 10,000 lives were lost. Broken Arrow is a Tulsa, Oklahoma suburb, And the address, 709 Magnolia Court, housed a family of nine. Parents David and April and their kids Robert, Michael, Daniel, Christopher, Crystal, Victoria, and Autumn. And it was on July 23, 2015, the family experienced what authorities would call the worst single criminal event in Broken Arrow history. Yikes. Around 11.30 p.m., 12-year-old Daniel Bever made the heroic call to the police requesting assistance. There was commotion in the background on the phone, someone screaming, and there was a male voice in the background, and then the line went dead. Dispatchers were able to trace that phone call that led them to the Bever home. When the police arrived, blood was found on the porch and in the driveway, indicating that something tragic had occurred. After knocking on the door and receiving no response, police forced their way in after hearing a faint voice calling from inside. And there they found Crystal, who was covered in blood and barely alive, calling out for help. The 13-year-old girl was discovered bleeding on the floor in the hallway. And she told them that her two brothers, Robert and Michael, had done this. And while searching the rest of the home, the police were on high alert because they very well could still be in the house. As they searched, they discovered more victims who have been subjected to a similar attack. The mother, April, and her young son, Daniel, were the first to be discovered. The father, David, was discovered next, lying on the floor. Upon searching the house further, the bathroom door was closed and locked. And once they forced their way in, two of the younger children, seven-year-old Christopher and five-year-old Victoria, were discovered. Once the house was cleared of no suspects being inside, first responders found that a back door was left open. 
it was believed that two suspects had fled through the back door after hearing a knock on the door running off into the darkness. Now, fortunately, they didn't get very far because their canine unit was able to track down the boys. They quickly detected their location and apprehended them in a wooded area where they were lying on the ground. I feel like Daniel, you know, having the guts and courage to call 911 right in that moment before he was attacked was such a heroic thing to do. This was an extremely terrifying moment, and he had the courage to call 911. And actually, if he didn't call 911, there would probably be a lot more deaths. And also, Crystal, she narrowly avoided her two brothers' attempt at murder. However, she was listed in serious but stable condition at the hospital as a result of her injuries. And Autumn, who was almost two years old, was discovered sleeping inside her crib unharmed. Fortunately, they did not attack her, but she will now have to live the rest of her life without her parents, knowing that her two oldest brothers slaughtered them and also her siblings. So why didn't they kill the two-year-old? They simply forgot. Wow. And although she would be too young to remember what happened, even if she was awake, it would still be terrifying to learn years later what had happened to her family. For sure. Now, Crystal, just like her young brother who dialed 911, was able to identify the ones who did this as her two brothers. She described being lured into her brother's bedroom to look at something on his computer when she was attacked with a knife. Unfortunately, she was the only survivor who was attacked. The father, David, was 52 years old at the time of this brutal attack inside their home, and he was stabbed over 50 times. The mother, April, was 44 years old at the time of this brutal attack, and she was stabbed over 40 times, but was eventually killed with blunt force trauma. Wow, the aggression that would go into stabbing someone 50 times? Is crazy. Yeah. Daniel, the 12-year-old boy who made the heroic call, died from multiple stab wounds. And Christopher, seven years old, died after being stabbed multiple times also. And Victoria, five years old, died after being stabbed more than 20 times. Jeez. So honestly, like, this isn't just a murder. Like, this is, this is evil. This is pure evil. Now, at the time when the boys were arrested, Robert made the arrogant compliment to the police on how fast they arrived. He also pathetically mentioned how their killing plans were kept on a flash drive inside the house. It's like an ego move. Investigators who were called onto the scene were left with this absolutely shocking, bloody scene inside the house. Blood was all over the floor. There was blood smears on the walls in a way that you would only see in a horror film. The family was slaughtered. It's believed that the boys plan to use the surveillance cameras installed throughout the house to show the police the tragic attack that occurred, as well as making a separate video without any bodies in view to share online. The oldest member of the Bever family, 18-year-old Robert Bever, and his 16-year-old brother, Michael Bever, were now facing charges of viciously attacking and murdering their family members and were emotionally disconnected from what they had done surveillance cameras like did they set up surveillance cameras or were they just in the house so they were actually already in the house the father of the house had set them up hmm, that's weird 
Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? It can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses, and it's just gross. Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding, such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. And my teenage boy passed the smell test after one week. That's impressive. With miracle sheets, I wake up often thinking that I'm in a five-star hotel because of the luxurious feel and comfortable temperature. I have never got such an amazing sleep. It's amazing how quality sheets can make such a difference. And what's interesting is there are some five-star hotels who use these exact sheets. Once you try Miracle Sheets, you will never go back to those old sheets because these aren't your traditional sheets, which can normally harbor bacteria. You can now sleep clean with Miracle. These sheets are designed for your skin. No more sleeping with bacteria that can cause breakouts. And just a bonus, this is the perfect holiday gift. Miracle Sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse, your friend, your family, or yourself. Who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets? And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts and one just in time for the holidays. Go to trymiracle.com slash crime salad to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40%. And make sure that you use our promo code to get the best savings. That's Crime Salad at checkout. You'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. And Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash crime salad and use the code crime salad to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash crime salad to treat yourself, a friend, or a loved one this holiday season. The father, David, in April, married in 1987 before they had children. David worked as a technical consultant for HP Enterprise Services, and April was able to stay with the seven children that they shared and homeschooled them. This large family was described as close-knit and quiet, frequently avoiding social situations. According to the boys, they were subjected to physical and psychological abuse, which could explain why the house was outfitted with surveillance cameras. Or perhaps the alleged abuse wasn't true at all, and the parents were just overly protective. Some believe that the homeschooling they decided to do for the children was a way to keep the children out of the public eye. Michael claims that their parents were religious and tried to keep them away from the outside world. However, the dangers of the outside world found their way in through the internet. Robert Bever, the oldest, had created a YouTube channel in hopes of becoming famous. In his videos, he appears to be a typical bored teenage kid. He and his brother Michael would frequently stay up late at night talking about dark fantasies that they had, making YouTube videos of themselves doing random things and talking about off-the-wall things. Keep in mind, they were each other's best friends. They didn't have any friends, they only had each other, who were most of the time inside their home and they soon concocted a plan to end the way that they were living and become instantly famous. 
Things started to get serious when Robert discovered that he could buy weapons and bulletproof protective gear online. His influenced mind about becoming famous like the serial killers that he knows all about from the internet was getting stronger. The two boys became very interested in school shootings and were influenced by the Columbine High School shooting and wanted to beat the kill, outdoing the number of kills anyone has ever had. Jeez, what a goal. Yeah, and they hoped to kill at least 50 people, but he stated that he didn't want to be gunned down by police because he wanted to experience the aftermath. He wanted to feel the attention that he never really got in his life, his face all over the news, and he wanted to bring his younger brother along for the ride. So some of that stuff can cost a lot of money, like bulletproof vests and and guns and ammunition. Like, how did they fund this dream of theirs? So, ironically, Robert worked at a religious call center, and he would pray with people who called in to request a prayer. Wow, that sounds so made up. It's not. And with that money that he earned, he purchased all of these items that he had to murder his family, and he intended to go on this killing spree somewhere in the state of Washington. Okay, so some spiritual leader. The one thing that kind of gets me here is it seems like they did it sloppy. Like, was this just an impulse one night that they decided to kill their family? Or was this something that they had actually planned for? That's a really good question. And actually, we will talk more about the plan that they came up with more in detail in just a few minutes. But it started with 13-year-old Crystal Bever. She went upstairs before 11.30 p.m. on the day of the brutal attack to inform her brothers, Robert and Michael, that their mother wanted them to do the dishes. As she approached the room, her two older brothers were together in the same room, wearing their bulletproof vests. This just so happened to be the day that they had planned the attack. The plan had been to attack the family at midnight, But because Crystal was present, they decided to attack her then and there. They told her to look at something on the computer, and she approached the computer desk while Michael distracted her by showing her something when Robert slit her throat. She screamed and she fell on the floor as her brother Robert continued to stab her in the neck, in the stomach, arms, and chest. Her mother rushed into the room to find her daughter bleeding out on the floor. April, the mother, yelled for someone to call the police and get dad. Then Robert stabbed and slashed his mother's throat. Hearing the commotion, the father came down the stairs where the screaming was and then entered the disarray of the two knifed and crazed boys. Then he too was attacked. One of the brothers, Michael, later explained that he was in shock by the sight of blood and was even more shocked to see this all unfold while three of his family members were bleeding out onto the floor and fighting for their lives. But that claim to the police contradicted itself as he was the one who then silenced an alarm going off in the house. Then he probably did the most horrific part of this whole attack. He went after his 12-year-old brother, Daniel, who was standing in the hallway. He was targeted next as his arm was slashed. But Daniel got away and he ran into his father's office and locked the door. Daniel courageously dialed 911. At some point, he got a hold of Michael's cell phone that was sitting in the living room earlier. And on that phone was the dispatcher. He pleaded for assistance, telling them that his brother was attacking the family. 
And Michael, he went up to the locked door and he tugged at the young boy's heartstrings, begging for help to be let in because he too was being attacked by Robert. Unaware that this was all a sick ruse to gain entry into the room so that his two older brothers could murder him. Begging to be let in, Daniel opened the door. Both the brothers entered and they discovered that he was talking to the police. On the dispatcher's end, they heard the young boy, don't murder me, with the sounds of screams in the background. And then there was a man's voice who put the phone up to his ear and he said, hello. And then the line was disconnected. Daniel was attacked with a knife after Michael smashed the phone onto the ground. Their next sibling was Christopher, who was in the bathroom in the next room. And he too had the door locked and Michael's evil trickery was used once again. In an effort to save Michael, Christopher was tricked as he opened the door to let him in, thinking that he was saving his life. But his older brothers viciously attacked him. Yeah, there's absolutely no way that he was shocked by seeing blood. Like, what did he expect, right? I mean, they planned this. They did it. He tricked two people into opening the door trusting their brother and he murdered them like this dude isn't innocent like he knew what he was doing yeah and in order to murder your younger siblings you have to be an incredibly evil person i 100 percent agree but daniel being able to make that phone call to the police was so crucial he's gone now but he was an absolute hero crystal wouldn't be here honestly who knows i don't know like the medical situation but 10 minutes more five minutes more she probably would be dead and their sister autumn i mean she was in her crib what if they remembered that she was in there right i mean the 911 call probably scared them enough to take off especially when someone knocked on the door but that's what saved two people in this family so just to recap everyone that they attacked appeared to be dead at this point But then there was the unexpected knock at the door. And it was around midnight at this point. The boys assumed that it was the neighbor who had heard the commotion and came by to see if everything was okay. And that is when the brothers took off running out the back door into the woods where the canine unit quickly tracked them down. Those dogs are so dang good. I love it. Dogs are the best. Now, as the police arrested the boys, Robert stated that he was proud of what he had done, creepily adding it was a pleasure to his brother Michael. In a number of photos taken by police of the boys, he and his brother can be seen smiling despite being covered in blood and tissue and their shirts being ripped. As for Robert, he reportedly seemed thrilled to discuss the killings and the future plans that he had that ultimately failed. We can only assume that this was a disturbing interview that he had because this recording was sealed and was never made public, but Michael's was. But at the same time, it's a good thing that they never shared his interview online because it's exactly what he wanted. Now, just to remind you, Robert is 18 years old at the time of the attack and Michael is 16 years old. Michael spoke with the authorities in the interview, and he told police during the interview that he wasn't as excited about murdering his family as his brother Robert had been. Robert had told him if they kill their parents and siblings and then mass murder 50 other people, that would make them famous. And this was his ultimate dream. And Michael wanted to join him. 
I believe that. I think that's pretty common in these types of situations. Like, even the dude in the Columbine shooting, there was, like, the head guy and then the other guy who, he didn't want to do it as badly as the other guy. Yeah. And Robert's 18. He's 16. The 16-year-old is probably more so looking up to his older brother, like, influenced by him. Yeah. Wants to be like him. 100%. Still evil, but yeah. Now, Michael, he admitted to stabbing his brother Christopher while he was in the bathroom, and he openly explained his actions in a truthful way, but in a way that would reflect how a teenager would act as if he had stolen someone's bicycle and was being questioned down at the station. He never broke down. He never felt remorse for what he did. And I have a feeling that his brother's interview went similar, but the conversation, like we said, never was public. To be honest, I feel like he's been practicing that, like, in the mirror for years. Like, this was his dream. <laughs> I don't know. To me, this was his chance to put on a show. It's still so shocking that they weren't even disturbed by their actions. They didn't cave. They didn't get any emotional effect from the murdering of their family. This was only a few hours after the attack. Right. I mean, it would be different if they did this to some strangers like at a mall this or is a their restaurant. mom their dad and five of their siblings you would think there would be some type of remorse but no in the interview michael measured the length of his knife with his hands which he described as having a camo print all over knife and he mentioned his brother having a similar knife but in red when the detective inquires about their relationship with their parents he revealed that there was child abuse that occurred in the home this, however, was never proven. According to court documents, after the murders, police received a journal believed to be crystals, which contained mentions of child abuse, supposedly. And investigators found nothing of the sort, but they did notice that a few pages of the journal had been ripped out. As a result, it was unclear whether these pages were about abuse. Nobody has come forward to claim the responsibility for ripping these pages out. And so the depth of the abuse, if any, was not confirmed. So are they thinking that the pages were ripped out after the crime, or is this something like done before the crime? Or do they not know? They don't know. Okay. It's weird, though. There was some talks like the prosecution ripped them out, or somebody ripped them out, but nothing's proven. Yeah, nothing came of it. Now, like we said in the interview, Michael was eager to share everything with the detectives. He was pretty open about the whole thing. And he mentioned that this was their plan. He also stated that this plan was all put together a month before the attack. Everything was planned down to the date. Michael and Robert had purchased ammunition for guns that they owned, and they planned to attack their family before their parents saw the package of ammunition coming to the house because they were worried they would become suspicious of what they were up to. Michael explained that Robert kept a journal specifically under his bed in which he detailed his plans for murdering his family and mass murdering a large amount of people, all for fame. Originally, they intended to shoot everyone, but then they were concerned that this would make too much noise. So they planned to quietly attack each family member so that no one would be aware and call the police. So the attack happened at 11.30. They planned for it to be at midnight, were they expecting them to be asleep? That's one thing that's weird to me that they were like, oh, it's 1130. It's close enough. Let's go. It's go time. Right. It just seemed sloppy. Like, I understand now that they didn't gather them for dinner and shoot them all at once because it would have been too loud. But 
Wouldn't you wait until they're asleep? That part still is weird to me. Initially, their plan was to attack Crystal and the parents first, since they were the oldest out of the group, and then attack the little ones. Yeah. But their plan didn't really play out like they hoped. While concocting this plan, they continued to order things online as the attack date approached, and packages were being delivered to their home. Even though it was strange to the parents that their older boys were into these things, like bulletproof vests and bulletproof protection gear, it wasn't at the time a major threat. It was just kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's hard not to be naive as a parent. Yeah, no parent would want to even think that their child would be capable of such a thing happening. I could see how they would think that this was maybe a strange phase that they were in. Or maybe they want to go to like a gun range or something. It's just like... A weird hobby? Right. I mean, they probably played games like Call of Duty. Maybe they thought they were influenced by it. But once they would find the 3,000 rounds of ammunition, I'm sure that they would get suspicious. Right. What are you doing with that much ammunition? But they never did find the ammo, though, right? They didn't because it arrived the day after the attack. They wanted to kill the family before this ammunition arrived so that they wouldn't be suspicious of them mass murdering people. Oh, because they have this bigger goal of killing 50 plus people in right. Washington state. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. How do you even order 3,000 rounds of ammunition without it being a red flag? 3,000 rounds of ammunition. So this part in the story is different than what I thought, though, because I thought they wanted to become famous for killing the family. But they had a bigger goal. They had a much bigger goal. Wow. Okay. So that's when this whole Columbine influence comes in. Yeah. And they said that they were aiming for 50 people, but there's some sources say that they were hoping for 500 people. As many as possible. As many as they possibly could. but Just enough to one up whatever. The Columbine. Right. Yeah. And become famous. So along with their 3,000 bullets of ammunition, these boys also had an array of protective gear, including bulletproof helmets, vests, bulletproof masks, bulletproof sleeves for their arms and their shins, and various different knives. They kept these items in their closets. So they cleaned them out. They threw away everything out of the closet, throwing old items into a garbage can that was in the garage and stored all of their gear in their closets. Yikes. Now, there was two main reasons why Michael said Robert wanted to do this. Number one, he hates everyone and he thinks society is pointless. And number two, we already know, he wanted to beat the kill of other famous killings like the Columbine High School shooting that happened in 1999, where two seniors murdered 15 people and injured over 21 others. Or like the shooter James Holmes, who shot and killed 12 people a few years ago in 2012 at a theater. And he also wore all that tactical gear, too, right? I believe so. Like Columbine, I think they wore, like, trench coats or something. But that theater one, he was, like, head to toe in tactical gear. And they really wanted a Wikipedia page, too. That would just put the icing on the cake. At one point in the interview, Michael explains that they first intended to use a crossbow to silently murder the family, beginning with the parents and the eldest sister, Crystal. However, the outcome was not as expected. According to him, the crossbow broke during the attack, so they weren't able to use it successfully. Now, after the killing of the family, they intended to stay in the house for one full day 
dismember the bodies, placing them in bins, and placing the bins in an attic and clean up all the blood. And the next day, the bullets were supposed to arrive, and then they were to take a road trip to Washington State where they planned to stop at restaurants and other public places where lots of people would be to kill as many people as they could. Again, I feel like they're just not thinking this out. You're going to have the police chasing you. So the boys, they were being charged with five counts of first-degree murder. Robert pled guilty to avoid the death penalty, so there was no court hearing or anything. And he began his five life sentences without the possibility of parole. However, Michael's attorney intended to file an insanity defense, which would require a trial. And that means Crystal would be expected to testify. After all, she was the only one who survived after being brutally stabbed. Now, Crystal Bever, she was the main source of concern. She had been through so much. Surviving this vicious attack, barely alive, having to undergo surgery, tragically losing five members of her family, her siblings, her parents. The trauma surrounding her had to have been so extreme. And now she was expected to talk about it. For a 13-year-old to have experienced such trauma, three years later, she would have to relive it all over again. Now, in court was another disturbing thing to witness. The boys sat next to each other, smiling and happy to see one another. It was like they were at some sort of meetup or convention. All while the courtroom was filled up with people preparing to discuss this horrible event that occurred in the Bever house and the lives that they took. When Robert, the older brother who initiated the plan, testified, he smirked. And he claimed that he was the only one who caused the stabbings and that Michael wasn't involved at all in the actual killings, contradicting what he had told police the day of the attacks. So now he's trying to protect his brother. That's what others thought as well. Now, there was one witness who had been there the entire time who had survived being viciously cut and stabbed. And she was the one who heard each and every one of her family members crying out for help as they were brutally being murdered inside this house, Crystal Bevers. Crystal was an important role in this trial for the reasons we've mentioned, but her bravery to be able to take this stand after everything she's been through is remarkable. Now, Crystal recalls a year before the attack happened, Michael told her that he and Robert had planned to kill the whole family and were asking her to help in the slaying of the family. She noticed that the boys were buying things online that matched with what Michael was telling her. When she mentioned this to her mom, it wasn't taken very seriously. Crystal Bever, who was now 16, explained that before the attack, the family went bowling, and then they came home to eat dinner. And when she walked into her brother's room to ask them to wash the dishes, a request from their mother, one brother asked the other, are we going to do this now? Crystal was motioned by the computer to check something out when her throat was slit, her stomach, her chest, her arms, and her neck were continuously stabbed in a vicious attack. She tried to flee the house, fighting for her life. She bled out onto the porch and collapsed in the front yard. The brothers saw her in the yard and dragged her back into the house, attempting to suffocate her, and they thought that she was dead. She remembers fading in and out, as she was barely hanging on and then hearing that knock on the door when she cried out for help. And the next thing she remembers is waking up in the hospital. 
she had surgery to replace her internal organs inside her body. She recalls hearing heartbreaking screams from her family members inside the house as they were being attacked. Now, during her testimony, the entire courtroom was in tears. And the jury, who were also reportedly brought to tears by this case, they found Michael guilty, and the judge sentenced him to five consecutive life sentences behind bars. This was a traumatizing case for everyone in that courtroom who had to see the photos of this crime scene walk through the murders, the evil doings surrounding the plans that they had and the actions that they took to trick their young brothers to open the door and hear Crystal's testimony. So now that these two will be in prison for the rest of their lives in separate prisons because they were co-conspirators in a crime, we hope Crystal Bevers has a supportive network who can offer understanding, empathy, and guidance as she heals. I really hope that she regains a sense of safety and security in her life. There should be like a government grant or something, something set up in a case like this so that they have like free therapy for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And I can't find anything on her. Like, is she doing okay? I mean, she probably wants her privacy at this point, but but yeah. Now, the sighting of this house in this neighborhood became a constant reminder of the horror experienced by the family members in this house. In March of 2017, the Bever family's house burned down in the middle of the night. The fire department arrived to find the house completely engulfed in flames, and it took them about an hour to extinguish the flames. They never found how this fire was exactly started, but they do believe it was arson, being that this was a common place to visit because it was kind of like the scary... The cool hangout. The cool hangout, like this is where the family was murdered type place. They burn it down like eight mile. The city raised $50,000 to demolish the burned house and to build a peaceful park called Reflection Park in its place. So rather than this being this constant reminder of tragedy, it's cool that they were able to do something positive with the location. I mean, it's better than it being just some like eyesore and some constant reminder of tragedy. This was now a park that had trees and flowers and a little walkway that circled the site where the Bever house once stood. Now, many professionals have tried to understand why mass shootings continue to happen because a lot of shooters share Robert's motive. A lot of them want this chance to be famous. A study that I found on National Center for Health Research, which was conducted by a few doctors, they examine the question, does media coverage inspire copycat mass shootings? And, I mean, when you think about this, how easy is it to find a video of the surveillance video of a mass shooter like the Columbine or recent ones that happened in a school? It's all over YouTube. When a mass shooting happens, they get a large amount of attention. Their name, their photo, their motive, along with their story, is plastered all over the news and internet. I mean, not to mention something from my youth. I watched uh, Elephant by Gus Van Sant. And, you know, it basically followed the storyline of the Columbine shooters. And it showed it at different perspectives, like from the shooter's perspective, from the, the student's perspective. You know, to me, it did nothing to me. Like, it didn't make me want to do anything. It didn't glorify anything. But to the right person, I mean, that movie is, is the blueprint could be very inspirational to somebody who looks up to someone like that. 
Right. And I think we have a lot of violence in society. I mean, everything from movies, you know, horror movies and glorifying serial killers all the way down to games like GTA. These are influential things. And I think to the average person, it does nothing. But to the right person or in the wrong hands. Yeah. And like the case that we just talked about, these two boys aren't the only ones who were influenced by the Columbine shootings. I think in a lot of ways, though, it's there's so much content for the Columbine shootings. I was scrolling through TikTok the other day, and there's stuff that I've never seen. And I've seen almost every documentary about the Columbine shootings. I've seen the documentary that was made, which Gus Van Sant didn't necessarily write it about the Columbine shooting, but it was. It's like implied. It definitely. There's so much to it. Like, you can really get lost in it. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it's in pop culture. I mean, even Tyler, the creator, said in a song like, this isn't some V-Tech or Columbine. And there was a recent shooting in Texas, and the guy who did it, his face was plastered all over the news. Every time, even in Connecticut just now. I mean, his face was up on the news before the shooting was even over. I mean, I even feel guilty talking about the case that we're talking about this week because... In a way, I feel like we're giving him that attention, even though it's something that I felt like we should talk about because it is this ongoing issue and I want to bring awareness to it. Yeah, especially specifically in this case, because the attention is what they wanted. You know, they wanted to be famous. They Mm -hmm. wanted people to talk about this. But honestly, I mean, we have an increase in mass shootings. So what causes that? We were talking about this off the podcast, but I think it's just a weird mix of everything. It's a recipe. It's something that we we don't know why it happens this way. Like, GTA does not affect me the same way it might some young kid. Yeah, in studies that I've came across, there are many general trends that occur among American individuals who have committed or attempted mass murders for the sake of being famous. And these things can be like having a strong opinion about society or racial groups, having a fascination with violence, influenced by role models like we've talked about, or a desire to be a copycat killer, narcissism, mood disorder, personality disorder, and having failed relationships. But, I mean, anyone can have these things and not have a desire to kill people, but it is one thing to look out for. Now, I did find one thing that was really interesting. Mary Ellen O'Toole, a former FBI profiler, she shares warning signs that she calls leaking that happened before a mass shooting. And she explains that there's a good chance that before a mass shooting, the shooter will leak or share their plan to someone, perhaps by talking about it with a friend, bringing it up to classmates, to a sibling, or writing it in a journal. There are forums online where people share their desires of mass shootings and romanticize killers as if this was a normal thing. But if we can somehow intercept these red flags, could we maybe prevent more shootings? I think the short answer to that is yeah. Now, there's an article from The Washington Post that pointed out there were seven gunmen in 2023 who showed warning signs before they did the shooting. So I think the warning signs were... You know, not only telling someone about their plan, but also like mental health signs or behavior signs, those types Mm -hmm. of things. For instance, the Connecticut shooting, he should have never had a gun. Like 
He had mental health issues. He was in a psych ward. You know, people knew about this. Could it have been avoided? Maybe. Or the shooting that happened in Nashville at a Christian school. I remember reading that someone on Instagram got a message from the shooter before it happened that they would probably see them on the news. So this was a leaking situation. Right. And to support what Mary Ellen O'Toole is saying, that warnings can be an alerting message like this. In the past, there has been cases that a shooter has told a family member or alerted somebody online. But at the time, it would be hard to comprehend when you're getting this message or you're talking to someone about this. Well, it's kind of like Crystal telling her mom that, you know, the the brothers said they wanted to kill the whole family. She didn't take it seriously. But at the same time, like, why would you? Right. It was so easy for her to dismiss it as teenage boys. They're going through this phase. It's difficult to believe that your own child could be capable of this. But we have to remember that we never know what someone's intentions really are and what they're truly thinking. Right. I I think that's why everything that's said should be taken seriously. If we do become more aware of these warning signs, maybe we can be one step ahead. I also stumbled upon a website called The Violence Project, and it's a very informative website. It's very well done, and they give visuals of every mass shooting in the U.S. since 1966. And it seems that the mass shootings have been more and more frequent over the years. So what is feeding this desire to kill or do these mass shootings? If it's the reason of fame, should police not release security footage of school shootings going down, shooting kids inside a school? Yeah, the extended footage is just too much. There's What's the purpose of that? Like, really? Yeah, it's views. Views, morbid curiosity, people who are influenced by these sort of things. It's just not right to show those things, in my opinion. Yeah. And we can go on and on about this topic. Obviously, it's a controversial topic. Nobody has the answers, but it's just something that just bugs the hell out of me. Like, I just wish I can do something about it. I mean, I want to go to, you know, Christmas light-up nights in in cities. I want to go to football games without worrying about, you know, crowds gathered and a shooter. Yeah. Honestly, I'm scared to go anywhere. That's why we just, like, hang out at home. Honestly, there's a lot of things we avoided doing because of crowds. Which is not healthy. That sucks. I want to send my kid to school and not think what if. Right. It's scary. It's so scary. But, I mean, this is probably a good place to, you know, end the episode. It's something to think about. You know, it's a serious matter. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and listening to Crime Salad and supporting us. We appreciate you so much. We do. We hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Cobble, cobble. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> All right, no more turkey. The turkey's done. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. 
I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.